finding your places. Hopefully you will also find your Bibles and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We will get to that in just a moment. There was one other, or there is one other announcement on your bulletin, and I do want to draw your attention to that. I wanted to give you that announcement before we started this morning, and that is about what's called Manna Sunday. So two weeks from today, we're going to have a combined 9 a.m. hour. So all the different groups that have 9 a.m. Bible study classes are going to take that Sunday off in their classes, and we're going to meet in this room at 9 a.m., and we're also going to have the 10.30 a.m. hour. And the whole Sunday is going to be about explaining an opportunity that we have in ministry with an organization called Mana Worldwide. And their European director, a brother by the name of Jerry Abbott, is going to be with us, and he's going to be explaining a ministry opportunity that we have to begin a feeding center for impoverished families in Albania. So Sazan Hoja, who is the pastor of the second church that we started, and he's been the pastor of that church now for 14 years, uh, for the last couple of years has been working to reach out to the poorer people of his community, and within the means that they have available, which are limited, they've been trying to help provide food through a food bank through the winter months. What they would like to do and what MANA does all over the world, among many other opportunities of ministry, one of the things MANA does is they set up feeding centers, and they do that by raising the money from Western churches through your sponsorships. So Jerry's going to be here, and he's going to be talking all about that. We'll announce it again next week and then two weeks from today. The whole Sunday is going to be about that. So whether you're regularly attending the 9 a.m. hour or not, man, we want you to come at 9 a.m. on that day and just kind of get all the nuts and bolts with him as he lays that out in the 1030 service. We're going to be talking about it as well as he leads our time. What I'm asking you to do starting today is just pray with us. Just pray with us about this opportunity. Pray with us about how we can help reach more kids because starting the feeding center is not just putting food in their bellies. It'll be five days a week feeding them Monday through Friday. But the contact with these kids that come in, um, obviously you have the opportunity to share the gospel and to teach them Bible stories. And, and many, many, many children all over the world have been saved as a result of this and grow and learn and that sort of thing. So I know a lot of families in this church uh, are very compassionate about things like that. I know a lot of families in this church have already been sponsoring children who need help in different places through the world, through different organizations, and God bless you for doing that. And maybe you want to add another. Maybe you want to start to do that. Maybe that's something that interests you, that uh, for whatever the total fee is, it's probably going to be in the neighborhood of like a dollar a day. Uh, you can help feed a child and give them the access to a solid biblical ministry that we couldn't know any better than we know our own ministry. This is our ministry in Albania. So uh, something to be praying about and something to be thinking about. It's a really, it's a really good opportunity. I'm psyched for Jerry to be here with us. Okay, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter number 4, and uh, man, I'm excited to be back and to be back into 1 Corinthians. And um, I know it's a long book, and it's going to take a while to get through all of it. We're going to get through all of it, but we're already in chapter 4, so that's pretty good. Um, the book of 1 Corinthians reveals to us a church that, well, they had a lot of problems. And they had seven different categories, really, of failure that God addresses through the Apostle Paul. And the theme that we've kind of put through this is the idea of the power of community. There's a lot of different ways we could look at a book like this, but one of the things I think God emphasizes over and over is how important it is for us to value 
the body that he has made us to be, the body of Christ, the body of believers that we are in community, and that our identity as a collective body really needs to take precedence in our minds and in our decision-making over our identities as individual Christians in Jesus Christ. Because the primary purpose of your life in Jesus Christ, I think you know, is not about you. It's about all of us. And it's about God's glory, of course. And so one of the ways that we've said it over and over is that we is greater than me. And that's kind of the theme as we go through this. As we enter into chapter 4, it's the last of the first section. The first section deals with personal relationships and the different ways that men fail when they think of themselves ahead of the group in personal relationships. And today in chapter 4, the relationship is between the church and its leaders. And so the title I'm giving, we're going to look at the first five verses, is the description of biblical leadership. Now, in any relationship, you know this, especially those of you who have lived a few more years and you're married and you've had some relationships, you know that it's important in order to have a healthy relationship that you really understand each other and that you have reasonable expectations for one another in your relationship. If you don't have those, invariably you're going to have conflict, right? So what we're going to look at today are four key areas concerning leaders. So if you're not a leader, you're just a member of the body, you're thinking, oh good, (laughs) it ain't about me anyway. Uh, Okay, well maybe, but before we're done, I think you'll see that it is important for you to pay attention because if your role is to be a leader of men and women in the body of Christ, certainly there are specific things for you to get. If your desire is to become a leader of men and women in the body of Christ, certainly you want to pay attention. But even if you're not, even if you're just a faithful participant in the body, it's very important that you understand God's direction for leaders and the things he gives us to do so that we can understand each other better and we can get along better. And I think that it's just a very, very healthy thing. This is the purpose of what we're going to study today. So if you'll just follow along, I'm going to read the first five verses. We'll pray and then we'll get into it. 1 Corinthians 4, verse number 1. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. Simple little straightforward passage of Scripture. I think there's a lot for us to learn. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Fathers, we come before you at this time. Certainly, we desire to understand all that you desire for us to understand. We need to understand what our role is as leaders. Those that aspire to be leaders need to understand what awaits them. And yet, all of us need to understand one another. And so, I pray that your spirit would have reign. I pray that we would see as you see. I pray that you would be pleased with our response at the end of the day when we hear what we hear, that each of us would answer to you in a way that's pleasing to you. Lord, come and teach us and change us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the four ways are going to begin with the first one, and I'm calling it the title, and the title given to us is a steward. 
it's a steward. That's, what the, that's how it starts off. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. <coughs> Excuse me. It says, let a man so account of us. Who is that? Who is the us that Paul's referring to? Well, I think that if you go back to chapter number 1 and verse number 12, he refers to himself and to Apollos and to Cephas. There was a lot of arguing and dividing among the people, among who are you following, who's your guy, who's the person that you're really getting behind, Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. Uh, next week, we'll get into the subsequent verses. If you glance down to verse number 9, interestingly, in the same context, he says, For I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles, last. So us, without question, is referred to as a group of men who are the leaders, people that the Corinthian church is looking to for leadership. And before we get into the stewardship thing, I want you just to notice it says, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So a person who is a minister of Christ, in fact, every person who wants to consider themselves a minister of Christ, and that's a lot of you, you're also really required to be a steward of the mysteries of God, and we'll see that as we develop this. So steward, what does that word really mean? Because it's important that we understand what it means. Well, what it really means is a manager. Uh, you're, you're like, you're a hired help, you're a hired manager, you're an administrator. Uh, in other places in the Bible, this word that's translated steward is also translated governor. Uh, it, it's, it's translated uh, chamberlain in another place. Uh, it's a person who receives a charge from another to look after and care for his treasure. Uh, it's used in Luke chapter 12 and verse 42 where it says, And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? So the steward is the one who is given the charge to rule over a household, and he's given that by the Lord. Uh, one of the tools of Bible study that I like using, many of you probably use, is the old Webster's Dictionary from 1828. There's some really good definitions in there. It's not the Bible, but uh, Webster was a saved man. And he often used Bible references to defend and support why he gave the definition he gave. So in Webster's 1828 of the word steward, just listen to this. The first definition is, a man employed in great families to manage the domestic concerns, superintend the other servants, collect the rents or income, and keep the accounts. And then Noah Webster gives Genesis 15 and verse number 2 in the dictionary. What a cool dictionary. Genesis 15, 2, and Abram, Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. So on the basis of his biblical understanding, he gave a dictionary definition. He gives another definition uh, in Scripture and theology, a minister of Christ whose duty is to dispense the provisions of the gospel, to preach its doctrines and administer its ordinances. So that's what a steward is. He's a manager. He's an administrator. He's one who has been given a charge by someone above him to care for this thing that's been given to him. We have to understand the terminology. We need to know the words and what they mean and how God uses them because those words give us the context. And context is everything. Context, the word context, just break it down into its component parts. 
Con, C-O-N, from the Latin root meaning with, right? Context, with the text. The context is the thing that goes with the text. If you don't have the right context going with the text, you're going to take the text of Scripture and you're going to get in a big mess. You're going to get in a lot of trouble. And that's why we have cults. Because they take the text of Scripture and they run off with no contextual understanding. So understanding the term of what a steward is is going to give us the context so that we don't get messed up when we get into this thing. So as we see, God has given to all of his ministers, ministers of Christ, this title of a steward. So actually, whether or not you have the official title in a church as a leader or a pastor, if you consider yourself a minister of Christ, then you have been given this official responsibility, and as we will see before we're done, you'll be held accountable for it. But this is particularly true of leaders, okay? So I want to camp here because I believe this is what Paul's getting at. Notice in Titus chapter 1 and verse number 7, very clearly, for a bishop, an elder, a pastor, a shepherd, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. Certainly the idea is given to those of us who have been given this responsibility, God definitely has delegated responsibility to his leaders to administrate something. Now, what is that something that he has delegated to us to administrate? Well, that's our second point. It's the theme, and it's the mysteries. The theme is the mysteries. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of what? Of the mysteries of God. Well, if we're going to understand the terminology, we need to understand what a mystery is. We need to understand it based on how God uses it. And that's what we're going to see in Romans 16, verses 25 and 26. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known unto all nations for the obedience of of faith. Man, we could just camp here and talk about the definition of a mystery and how God uses it throughout his word. But all I want you to see is that very clearly in black and white, comparing scripture with scripture, looking up the word in a concordance and pulling it out in another place, we see God's definition of what a mystery is according to the revelation of the mystery, comma, what is a mystery which was kept secret since the world began? It's something that used to be secret but now is made manifest. Well, how is it made manifest? Well, according to the scriptures. So a mystery is something that in the Old Testament time wasn't revealed. But now that Paul's revealing new things in the New Testament through the Holy Spirit, right? They are being revealed. So at one time they were a mystery, but now they are revealed. That's a biblical mystery. That's what it is. What you need to understand is this, and it's actually pretty cool. It's the next point in your notes. God shares things with his people that he hides from others. I mean, that's really pretty cool. You think, well, well that's not nice. Uh, well, <laughs> okay, maybe. You're privileged, y'all. You surrendered your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, and he says, man, that's great. Now you're in my family. Come on, son, sit on my lap. Let me tell you a few things. That's what he does for you. Why the lost world wouldn't want to get on that deal, I still don't understand. But he defines this for us, and, and he uses the word parables. You read about parables, and sometimes people are confused. What exactly is a parable? 
Well, a parable is basically written in the same idea as any, any mystery. Matthew 13, 10 through 13, it defines for us. And the disciples came, so we know who the people are. They're believers, right? The followers of Christ. And they said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? You ever wonder what a parable's really all about? Okay, he answered and said unto them, here's what it's all about. Because it's given unto you, disciples, to know the mysteries, there they are, of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, people who aren't disciples, it's not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he that hath more abundant, and, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore speak I unto them in parables, because they seeing see not, hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. So there comes a time in Jesus' ministry where if you track the history of his three-year earthly ministry, that he began doing great miracles and signs, and, and once the nation of Israel turned on him, once the nation of Israel said, nah, you're a fake, you're a phony, and in fact attributed his works to the devil, Matthew chapter 12. Immediately, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, oh, okay, well, I think I'm going to change my strategy a little. I'm going to start speaking and teaching things in parables. Because a parable is not just a metaphor. It's not just an illustration. A parable is written with a specific purpose that a lost guy can't get it. But a saved guy can. He can. That's how you're going to understand the mysteries. So he's revealing to you some things that he doesn't reveal to other people. He's sharing his treasure with you. And when he shares his treasure with you, he says, I'm going to give you this. And I'm going to delegate to you the responsibility to care for this treasure of truth that I'm giving to you. So take it seriously, take it wisely, understand it well, and as you communicate it to others, make sure you do it accurately because this is my treasure. I didn't give it to them. I gave it to you. And I gave it to you ultimately so that you can give it to them. We are stewards, and we need to take this responsibility seriously. So there are some things in the New Testament that are specifically called mysteries. I mean, it's not even hard, y'all. You can just go through the Bible and you can go through a concordance or your computer program and you can just look up mysteries and the word is used multiple times but there are literally exactly seven times where it is defined specifically as a thing. And there are seven New Testament ministry, ministries. There's more than that. And min, min, mysteries, if I could talk right, excuse me. And we have looked at these before, even in this study in 1 Corinthians very quickly, we're in chapter number 2, and we'll look at them also very quickly right now. But to be stewards of the mysteries of God presupposes that you know what they are, okay? So if you go around and ask your friends who are, that say they're believers, you know, God told us that we need to be stewards of the mysteries of God, uh, what are they? Um, you know, be nice if you do that because most of them won't know. Uh, it's sad, actually, because most churches don't know. And it's sadder even yet because the churches don't know because their leaders probably don't know because they don't take their stewardship seriously. But we take it seriously, and you take it seriously. And so we're going to help you understand what are the seven New Testament mysteries because this is our stewardship. This has been entrusted to us. 
There's a lot of things we need to understand. The Bible is full of teaching. It's full of doctrine. But man, when he says you are the stewards of the mysteries of God, and then he explicitly lists seven mysteries, don't you know we ought to know those? <laughs> don't you know those are seven things we've got to make sure we don't blow? And they're not that hard because they have been revealed. Let's walk through them. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16. It's the mystery of the incarnate Christ. And if you throw the verse up there, 1 Timothy 3.16, basically the idea is this, God was manifest in the flesh. In other words, and we're not going to spend time talking about all these, but just think about it for a second. God Almighty, who created all of heaven and earth and everything that therein is, comes down to live inside his creation as a little baby who needs to be taken care of by his creation. You explain that to somebody. Seriously, you think about explaining that to somebody. You can't do it. You can't explain that to somebody. It's a mystery. It's been revealed to you. You believe it. You understand it because God said it. And you put your faith in it like it's, like it's so. And it is so. But you go try and tell somebody who has no basis of faith that the eternal almighty God of the universe, whether they even believe that exists or not, came down to earth and lived as a little baby? This whole philosophical debate thing about proof for the existence of God or not? Really? I used to debate some in, uh, with the philosophy club in college, and I know that's weird, but I used to like doing it. And they would have stuff like, they'd bring in some expert, you know, that would, they'd have guys talk about proof for the existence of God or against it, and of course they were against it. And I went to one of those things one time, and I sat in the back of the room, and I waited, and when it was all said and done, you know, they pitched all their reasons why God can't be real and all that sort of thing. I just raised my hand, questions, okay, I raised my hand, and I said, of, of course we know God exists because he came to earth as a human being in the form of Jesus Christ and proved it to all of us. And it blew them all away, and the whole debate shifted from some esoteric conversation about this God force existing or not to, is Jesus Christ God? Now we're on some solid ground. <laughs> this is a mystery. This is a mystery. The next one, Colossians 1.27, the mystery of the indwelling Christ. So let's throw that verse up there. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus Christ indwells the body, the physical human body of every single one of us. Explain that to your neighbor. Try and explain that to somebody. Jesus Christ lives inside of me. Okay. Uh, and he lives inside of you. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and point our fingers all the way across the world. Do I get a little fragmented piece of Jesus and so do you and well that's good enough? No, I get all of it, and you get all of it, and that's a mystery. But it's been revealed, and it belongs to us. It's our stewardship. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 32, the mystery of our unity with Christ. So Ephesians 5, 32, and we'll throw that one up there. That It says it's a mystery, right, that the Jews and the Gentiles are one body, in Jesus Christ, that we are members of his body, right? That's what it says in verse number 30. We are members of his body and of his flesh, 
and of his bones. Now this Ephesians chapter 5, a lot of you know that that's the, that's the marriage chapter. You go to marriage seminar, you're going to study Ephesians 5. You get married, somebody's probably going to read that verse, that, that passage of Scripture about husbands love your wives and all that sort of thing. Okay, great. At the end of it all, he says, yeah, but wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not really just talking about husbands and wives. I'm talking about Christ in the church, y'all. We're members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. Okay, let me ask you something. Those of you who are married, and you and your wife are both here, and hopefully you're sitting together. <laughs> me and my wife don't, but, you know, I hope you do. Um, so you're sitting where you're sitting. She's sitting where she's sitting. You have your flesh and bones. She has her flesh and bones. And yet the Bible says you're one flesh with her. Explain that. Okay, well, let's take it over here. Jesus Christ is seated in heavenly places. We're of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. We're seated in New Philadelphia. But we're one flesh and one body and one... Okay, explain that. You see, it's a mystery. You know why churches don't talk about stuff like this? Because it requires study. It's hard work. You've got to dig into stuff. You've got to see what he's saying. You've got to actually believe what he says, first off. But then you need to just roll with what he says and be willing to believe it and be willing to accept whatever he says, even if it goes against, you know, your refined sensibilities. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, the mystery of the rapture of the church. I mean, think about it. We, we you know, the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. One day he's going to call our names and we're going to go up and meet him in the sky. And, you know, if you've been in church a long time, you're excited. Man, this is going to be cool. Okay. But just think about it for a second. The sudden, the twinkling of an eye, disappearance off of the planet of everybody who is a true born-again believer. Just like that. Now, if you're old like me, you remember old Christian movies that had a low budget like Thief in the Night. Some of you have, you know, been through your own conversations with people trying to just say, you know, well, what's that going to be like if you have unsaved friends or relatives and you've ever talked about the rapture, for example, and they're like, that's weird. How's that? How are they going to pull that off logistically? What's that going to be like? Is there going to be pile of clothing just laying everywhere what if one of the christians is an airline pilot and he's thirty thousand feet in the air what if and then you start going everybody starts talking about all this stuff i don't care how you try and explain it well it'll be in the middle of a thermonuclear war and people will be just a you know disintegrated into ash anyway and really that's okay explain it however you want to good luck it's a mystery but it's true because he says it's true and it's going to happen but try and explain that to people I don't care how you try to explain it. A person without faith thinks your explanation is weird. Romans 11.25. Listen, this one sounds weird to the world. Think about this one. The mystery of the return of Israel? Are you kidding? The idea that one day Israel as a nation is going to get right with God and get saved. Oh, and rule Palestine. Tell that to CNN. (laughs) 
tell that to the news media outlets. Tell that to anybody who follows history and politics and wars. There is no place on this planet that has worse hatred and conflict than the Middle East. No place. And the Jews are outnumbered, y'all. And everybody around them, right, is making plans. How are we going to get rid of those guys? Iran, you know, the big voice in the crowd over there, you know, they just changed, if I'm not mistaken, they, they just changed their flag and put an atom bomb on it with like a big mushroom cloud. Like, that's their flag, the flag of our nation. They are committed to annihilating the Jews. Um, well, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you might get a little traction for a while, but the mystery of Romans 11 says, ain't gonna work. Israel's coming back. And they're coming back as God's people not just a mighty army to, to wipe out their enemies. This is a mystery. You try and explain that to people who just follow current events, they're going to think you're crazy. They're going to think you're It sounds impossible, right? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 7, the mystery <coughs> excuse me, of the spirit of Antichrist. Well, this is the revelation that there's going to be a world leader that pops up on the scene. He's called the man of sin. He's called the son of perdition, Right? He's going to appear on the world political stage and he's going to be empowered by the spirit of the devil. And he's going to bring a false peace on this earth for a little over three years and when he gets the whole world to follow and worship him, he's going to go ahead and pull his mask off and let everybody know who he really is and he's going to sit down in the throne of the temple in Jerusalem and demand that everybody worship him as the return of Jesus Christ. But he's not Jesus Christ. That sounds loony. That sounds weird. That there's, oh, by the way, it, it's not loony and it's not weird. It's absolutely prophetic. And if what we believe about eschatology, the end times, and if what we believe about the rapture of the church could come any day, and it could, you know what that means? That this man of sin, this son of perdition, I mean, just face it, odds are he's alive and well right now, somewhere. He just hasn't revealed himself yet. He's alive and well and probably living in the Middle East. We don't exactly know. Just a guess. We can study all about him and what he's going to be like and all that sort of thing. All I'm trying to point out here is this is one of the mysteries. You need to understand that there is a spirit. It is the spirit of the devil, and he is going to control one main player. Think about it. That guy is going to bring, literally, that guy for three years is going to bring peace to the Middle East. Nobody's been able to do that. When that happens, everybody's going to bow down and say, you the man, you must be Jesus. And he's like, that's what I was trying to tell you. And then it all goes south. <laughs> and the last three and a half years of that tribulation is hell on earth. The last one, Revelation 17, 5, the mystery of the religion of Antichrist. Well, this thing is specifically called Babylon, mystery, religion. Babylon, mystery religion in that verse and so the antichrist will not only be a political leader right but he'll be connected to a particular religion which religion has its roots in ancient babylonian pagan idol worship if you were to study revelation chapter 17 you'd see some characteristics of this religion it's associated with a particular city in verse 18. 
uh, that city is built upon seven mountains in verse number 9. Uh, the city is associated with the colors purple and scarlet in verse number 4, and it has a symbol, and the symbol is a golden cup. Think you can figure out who that is? Think you can figure out which city it is that's built on seven mountains whose colors are purple and scarlet and whose symbol is a golden cup, who is both religious and political, a place where all the world political leaders of today go to to bow down before him and kiss his ring? Think you can figure that out? You try and tell people about that, they'll think you're crazy. They'll think you're crazy. These are seven biblical mysteries that are entrusted to us. God says, I'm going to tell you things that I'm not telling anybody else. I'm giving it to the church, and I'm putting it specifically in the hands of capable leaders. So it's my job to make sure that you know about them. That's what my job is. That's what they are. But why do you need to know them? Well, you need to know them because understanding the mysteries protects you from false doctrine. It protects you from error, right? It protects you from false teaching. And false doctrine, y'all, don't kid yourself, leads to sinful behavior every time. Why? Because you're going to do something in the name of God thinking you're doing right and you're actually not. You're doing the opposite. You're doing what he did not say. False doctrine leads to sin. You've got to get the doctrine right. I want you to think about it with me. If all preachers would be faithful in their stewardship of the mysteries, nobody would ever think that you could lose your salvation. Amen. You would never think that you could lose your salvation because we are one body with Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit is in us, not just on us. No one would ever deny the deity of Jesus Christ, ever. They would understand that He was God manifest in the flesh. No one would ever deny that Israel is coming back as God's people, which would mean that there would be no religions that would try and steal Israel's promises. The physical blessing promises like taking over Jerusalem, ruling the nations of this world politically and religiously, things that are promised to Israel and Israel alone in the millennium. People would not be confused with claiming physical prosperity as a natural result of your faith in Jesus Christ. That's an Old Testament principle given to the nation of Israel that God would bless them and prosper them physically as they were faithful to the Lord. That's not for us in the church. But if you don't know the mysteries, you get messed up. And we have prosperity gospel philosophy. Uh, everybody would know which, the, which is the main religious system that will attempt to replace Israel and rule the world and have all the kings of the earth travel to her city and bow before her like I just described. Nobody would ever be confused again about post-millennial or amillennial teaching that Jesus Christ comes back after we have brought in the kingdom with our good deeds. No, because they know that this world is getting worse and worse and worse until it's ultimately led by the Antichrist and the only possible way to set it right is for Jesus Christ himself to split the sky, to come down in Armageddon, to put an end to it all, and then set up his 1,000-year kingdom 
pre-millennial kingdom return of Jesus Christ. And everybody know that the church cannot possibly go through the tribulation, but will be removed before it. And so, you know, all of you preppers out there, you know, good luck to you, but you don't need it. We're not going through the tribulation. Life can get worse, I get it. But we are not going through the Bible tribulation, not if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. But most Christians don't know these things. And they don't know these things because their churches don't know these things. They don't teach them. They don't teach them because their pastors don't know these things. Which means that many of you truly, sadly, truly understand more Bible than the majority of people who call themselves Christian pastors around this world today. To whom much is given, y'all. Much is required. And there's a lot of reasons why they're not teaching their people, and I'm not saying that they all don't know. I have no idea what other people know. I just know what they're not teaching. I just know the state of Christianity today. There's a famine in the land, y'all. Right? It's not a famine because there don't exist Bibles. There's the famine of hearing the words of God. They won't hear. They're not being spoken. People are telling their story. Why won't people teach these things? Well, I don't know. I'm not in their heads. But I know that maybe they're worried. You know that doctrine divides. I don't want to divide up. our. I don't want to make anybody mad. I don't want to run them off. I mean, we're going to be passing the plate here in a minute. I don't want to affect that. I want to make you happy. I want you to feel good about yourself. I want you to understand your best life now. I want to make sure that you realize that, oh, it's all good in the hood, man. I mean, just stay here. Why in the world would I scare you off with truth? Everybody's got their own thing to figure out before the Lord. But we are ministers of Christ. A minister is a servant. We are ministers of Christ. We serve Christ by stewarding his word. How do you serve Christ? Well, if it's not by being a faithful steward of the treasure he gave to you, i.e. the Bible, well, are you a minister of Christ? You answer that question. There are expectations with this stewardship, and that's our third point. I'm calling it the trait. The trait is to be faithful. Verse number two, Moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Man, this is rich, isn't it? It is required. It is not optional. It's not a good idea for you high achievers. No, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Hey, preacher. (laughs) I'm talking to the Facebook crowd now, I guess. I don't know. You can't forget about this one. You can't just ignore it. It's required. You have to be faithful. Well, that's an easy word. Full of faith. Well, what is faith? Well, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's believing God at His word, even when it doesn't make sense, like those seven things I just listed for you. You're full of faith. You believe what He says. Let's go back to Webster's 1828. He defines it this way. Constant in the performance of duties or services. Well, that's obvious, right? You're a faithful servant. You carry out what has been given you to do constantly 
and faithfully. That's what you do. So, in your notes, the job of a biblical leader is primarily to be a faithful teacher of God's Word. The primary job description of spiritual leadership in the church is not to politic. It's not to raise money. It's not to hold your hands. And it's not to please the crowd. By the way, those are fine. Those are nice. And you appreciate it probably. But it is not the explicitly defined stewardship given to ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to prove it for you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Peter writes, To the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you. There's your job. Taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. It's the same thing the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4 when Jesus Christ gave these gifts unto the church in verse 11. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Those two have to go together. You can't be a pastor shepherd and not be a teacher of God's word. Oh, and you can't just be a teacher of God's word and not care about people as a shepherd. They go together. What is the job, pastor teacher, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ? So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the bishop is supposed to be apt to teach. Apt to teach. What is he supposed to teach? He's supposed to teach the scriptures. The scriptures which, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, are given by inspiration of God and profitable Numero uno for doctrine. Doctrine. Teaching. That's what they're profitable for. And that's what our job is. The trait that a steward must have is that he must be faithful in his stewardship. What is his stewardship? They are the mysteries. Back to your notes. This stewardship is so important that God will hold us accountable for it. You would expect no less. He's going to hold us pastors, leaders, teachers, for sure, accountable for how we have performed in our delegated management of his word. This is a serious thing. Luke chapter 16, verse number one, and he said also unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, how is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. And the story continues. You can read it on your own time. The idea is this. This is a picture. A certain rich man is God. And the steward are the disciples. It's us, right? And certainly leaders. And he heard, hey, wait a minute. You're not faithfully managing my treasure, I'm going to call you into account. How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account. And if you blow your stewardship, he'll take it away from you. Now that rolls into rewards in the millennium, and that's another subject for conversation, but that accountability leads us to our last point, point number five, and that's the trust. The trust in this issue is judgment. It's judgment, and this is verses three, four, and five. 
Now listen, we spent a lot of time on verses 1 and 2. Verses 3, 4, and 5 kind of flow. But God's people, <laughs> I love y'all, seriously. God's people are weird. We, we are, okay? I mean, they're funny, man. Uh, God's church has this thing where they judge each other. I mean, let's just get real. And especially their leaders. They just do. And they do it far too frequently over just the dumbest things in the world. Is he nice? Is he funny? Do I like him? Does he show up and hold my hand every time something happens? Does he say just the right things? Does he present himself well? Can I be proud when I walk into that church and tell people I go there? Is there anything really wrong with those things? Well, not necessarily. But all of those things I just described, which a lot of Christian people judge their leaders on, you know what? It's all about you. It's all about what you get. You know, if those were the criteria, people wouldn't like the Apostle Paul very much. Oh yeah, that's right, they didn't like the Apostle Paul very much. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 6. Look at this. 2 Corinthians eleven six. 6. We got that one? We don't have it. It's an awesome verse. Paul says, although I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge. Uh, Paul had a way of speaking that was a little bit abrasive. But he says, you know what? I know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm talking about. Uh, Paul wasn't afraid to confront hard issues, things that weren't comfortable. And the average church attender, they don't like that. They judge a guy who does that, right? So he goes in verse number three, Paul says, you know what, if that's going to be the case, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. In other words, he's saying, look, y'all, judge me if you want. No skin off my nose. That's not the judgment that matters, right? But rather, God's people should judge whether their leaders are faithful stewards of God's word. That's how you ought to judge it, right? Isn't that what he's telling us? Are you a faithful steward, shepherd, of God's word, of the mysteries? Does my spiritual leader tell me the truth? That's what he wants you to see. Hey, Christian, this is for you. This is for you. This should be a requirement for you when you choose a church, when you choose pastors to sit under. You should find out, does this guy know what he's talking about? Does he tell the truth? Is he a faithful steward of the words of God? That's how you search for a church. Maybe you're here for the first time and you're looking for a church. If you are, I'm thrilled you're here and you may not pick this one. I don't know. I wish you would. But while you're searching, let me give you some good advice. That's what you should search for. Somebody who tells you the truth, who gives you God's word so you can interact with God. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, what good is all the fun at summer camp if we don't give them God's word? I mean, anybody can plan a camp, right? The YMCA can do that. Anybody can do that. 
And so it's not about programs. It's not about that stuff. Back to your notes. The church is assembled weekly to inform God's people. The church is to be biblically literate. And if you have pastors, if you have leaders that do that job well, you need to thank God. You need to thank God. You need to value such men. You need to hold on to them because it's a rare thing these days, y'all. Do you realize how bad it is out there, really? Do you realize how illiterate, biblically illiterate, people that name the name of Jesus Christ are? You go talk to people about things of the Lord and they just say, well, I think, my church says. There's no authority in any of that stuff. I mean, who really cares what any of us think? At the end of the day, we didn't create the world. We didn't make the rules. Well, to me, it seems like it should be. Well, you know, God bless you. Enjoy your lunch. I mean, who cares with all due respect? What does God say? Well, I don't have time to dig all that out. Well, go to a church where a guy does. How about that? Go and learn something. It's a privilege that I have that you afford me to spend all week studying so that I can feed you. God designed it that way. I take it seriously, and so should everybody. Verse number four, For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. So listen, Christian, you kind of cheesed at your leaders for whatever reason. You want to kind of see if you can dig and get at them. Can I just tell you on the basis of verse number four, just relax, man, relax. God's got it. I mean, if your leaders are really that doofusy, I mean, come on. God will get them. You don't need to help him. In fact, why would you want to jump in and try and mess it up? The Lord's got it all figured out, and you jump in. He might just say, well, okay, go for it. I guess I'll give him a break then. I mean, judge it however you want to. The Lord will do it. Trust me. That's why I don't understand anti-Semites. I don't understand why people are like anti-Jewish people. I don't get it. I mean, the Lord is going to get those guys, man, before they get saved and they come back. They're going to go through the tribulation. It's going to be awful. Why would you want to mess with that and then maybe have God have compassion on them because you were so mean to them? I mean, why doesn't the guy in Iran figure that out? Right? Just leave it to the Lord. He's going to take care of it. The Jews messed up, but they're going to get it right. You don't have to do that. Okay, I'm getting off. Sorry. Let me get back. James chapter 3, verse number 1. My brethren, be not many masters, i.e. teachers, knowing that we, teachers, shall receive the greater condemnation, judgment. If you stand before God's people and you teach them God's word, better get it right. You better get it right. Amen? Don't you know God takes that seriously? That's why he tells us, 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto the church. No, that's not what he says. Study to show thyself approved unto God. God wrote it. You better get it right. He's the one that's going to call us into account. He's fully capable of doing that. You don't need to help him out. And the phrase is, before the time, verse number five, therefore judge nothing, church, before the time. What is that time? Until the Lord come, Right? So that's the admonition to the church concerning the judgment of its leaders. Don't. Don't. Well, what if they're in deep sin? Well, then do follow the scripture and, and do what you have to do. Go talk to them individually. Take two or three with you. There, there are ways to deal with people. I'm not saying leaders have carte blanche, get away with anything. 
I'm telling you, don't get caught up in the foolish stuff. That's what I'm telling you, because there is a time, and that time is the judgment seat of Christ. And we saw that in chapter number three. It's very clear. What's going to happen at the time? Who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of the heart? So that day, that day of judgment, will bring to light the hidden things of darkness. The context is these teachers called into account for their stewardship. What are the hidden things of darkness? We'll go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where it says, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. What is that? Not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. The hidden things of darkness are deceitful teachings, false teachings, handling the word of God deceitfully. It's dishonest. It's not true. And the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. So hey, TV preacher, flying in airplanes and driving Bentleys and selling books, if you got all that stuff by handling the word of God deceitfully with no authority, but hey, it sells, you better buckle up, pal. You're not out of the woods yet. Hey, Laodicean church growth expert who's going to switch Bible versions every year based on what's popular, telling stories and sharing rather than preaching the word and telling the truth just to gather crowds and make money. You better watch out. It ain't over till it's over. But on the flip side, there's going to be some guys who really have pure intentions. They really do. The counsels of the heart. And even though some of the details might have got mixed up a little bit, and man, they meant to represent the Lord in sincerity and in truth, and God will judge the counsels of your heart. This book is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to discern between the thoughts and the intents of your heart. 1 Timothy 5, 24 and 25. Scary little couple of verses. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment. Some men they follow after. You blow it, you might get caught today, and everybody sees how you got caught. You might get away with it for a while, but God's watching. Oh, on the other hand, likewise, verse 25, also the good works of some are manifest beforehand. Some people do wonderful things and everybody recognizes it and praise the Lord and it stimulates us to want to do more. But some people do wonderful things and never get recognized for it. And they that are otherwise, in other words, their manifestation of their good works hasn't appeared yet. Oh, that, that can't be hid. God will make that manifest too. So whether you've done well or whether you've done poorly, you might see the rewards today, and you might not, but know this, it's going to work out. It's going to work out in the end the way it's supposed to. That's why verse 5 ends, and then shall every man have praise of God. Every man will finally recognize that God has made all things right, the just and the unjust. Everybody gets theirs. Praise the Lord. He makes it right. Listen, there should be something in you if you have been slugging it out and sacrificing and trying to do right for the Lord. And there's other guys who are just as carnal as an alley cat. And they seem to get away with it like crazy. There ought to be something righteous in you that says, man, you know, 
They ought to have to answer for that. Man, I seems like I get busted every time I try. Why don't they get busted? <laughs> Listen, it's all going to work out. It's all going to work out. So false teachers and deceivers and compromisers and lazy leaders, they're going to be called into account. And faithful leaders, who may not always get their recognition, they'll be rewarded. And here's what we need to understand as a church body. Peaceful, harmonious community in a church exists when we understand each other. According to God's requirements, not our own, right? So wherever you're at, what is God telling you to do? Do you strive to be a minister of Christ? Are you a faithful steward of God's word? You don't know that much yet. Okay, we'll get involved in our discipleship program. We'll help you. Uh, have you judged the leaders that God has placed over you unfairly based on some ridiculous standard that you made up and how you feel? Maybe God's trying to get your attention. What I want us to do is just take a minute and pray and confess it to the Lord and get it right so that he can be pleased with our lives. Will you pray?